0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotak, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Guyana First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Fred Wah with Shu Yin Yu. My name is Mark Herman Lynch, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Fred Wah and Shu Yin Yu discuss the conference named after one of his first books, Alley Alley Home Free, held in Calgary to celebrate Wah's retirement. Listeners are going to find eye-opening Wa's vast interconnection with an incredible assortment of Canadian writers, from his early friendships with BP Nickel and Dennis Johnson to the students he taught like Hirami Goto, Lisa Robertson, Ashok Mather, and Susan Holbrook, to name a few. This interview provides a wonderful survey of Wa's writing over the years and the evolution of his writing focus. This interview discusses concepts of the archive, the evolution of digital humanities, creative writing community projects like the Calgary Writers' House, and Waugh's vast collection of audio recordings. Fred Waugh lives in Vancouver and the West Cootneys. He was Canada's Parliamentary Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2013, and made an Officer of the Order of Canada in 2013. His award-winning poetry, fiction, and non-fiction include Sentence to Light, his collaboration with visual artists, Isadore, a series of poems about hybridity, and Scree, the collected earlier poems, 1962 to 1991, published in 2015. His latest writing involves the Columbia River, as does his collaboration with Rita Wong, Beholden, A Poem As Long As the River, published by Talon Books in the fall of 2018. "Hi Muckamuck, Playing Chinese, an interactive poem, is available online at hi-muckamuck.ca, And an adaptation of his biofiction Diamond Grill, called A Door to be Kicked, was released as a radio play for Kootenai Co-op Radio in 2021. Music at the Heart of Thinking, Improvisations, was published by Talonbooks Books in the fall of 2020. Xu Yun Yu is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Calgary. Her research interests are East Asian Diaspora Studies, Asexuality Studies, and Food Studies in Children's and Young Adult Literature and Media. She received her HBA from the University of Toronto and her MA from the University of Calgary. We hope you enjoy this interview of Fred Wah with Xu Yun Yu. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. We're really excited to talk to you about Ali Ali Home Free, both the book, but also kind of the archival process that is happening. So for our listeners who may not have the entire context, we have uh, a series of tapes that kind of capture a unique moment from, I believe, 2001 to 2003. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the book. We're going to be talking about the archival process. And we're also going to be talking about the conference to kind of get a sense of how things have changed, but also kind of remain the same. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Fred. So I thought we could kind of begin by talking a little bit about setting the scene
3: for our listeners. I guess the whole whole notion or the title Ali (laughs) Ali Humphrey comes from a book that was published, a book of mine that was published by Red Deer College Press in Mm -hmm. uh, 1992. And it was part of a series of planned uh, long poem, if you like. Uh, the first volume which, of which was called Music at the Heart of Thinking. And I think that was published around 1986 mm-hmm. or something like that. So they're, they're numbered. And L.E.L.E. Ellie Homefree was number 100 of pieces. And then the whole thing was collected recently as uh, Music at the Heart of Thinking Talon books published the whole collection mm-hmm. up to 170, it goes. And that includes the book Ellie Home Free and Music of the Heart of Thinking. And then a third section, which was all just we just used the original title for the whole thing. But Ellie Ellie Home was a a lot of them a lot of its prose poem, a lot of it's it's very improvisatory, very very much. I was very much interested compositionally in the whole notion of poetic prose if you like or the the, what's called uh what ron silliman called the new sentence the prose poem sentence and i play around a lot in the writing with trying to argue against the tyranny of the sentence as a compositional Mm -hmm. uh structure so it's it's a little bit i don't know some people say it's really too off the wall it's hard to doesn't contain a lot of messaging or direct meaning if you like if uh, i know how to explain that but the title ali ali home free is a phrase is a phrase that i used to use as a kid in uh, in our neighborhood it involved a it involved a game of that usually ended up being involving kind of a tag system so and it's, it's like playing hide and seek or throwing a ball over a roof and the last one to touch or kick the can is, yells out, alley alley home free, okay? So that's what we used to do. And uh, mm-hmm. I kind of liked that phrase as, a, as an indication of coming through, breaking through something and touching base, you know, kicking the can, if you like, or, or, or tagging, uh, tagging up the last person or whatever, however you want to play with it. So that was, that just became the title of the book. And then when they were setting up this conference, uh, this thing at the end of my career at the University of Calgary, they did a this conference for myself and my wife, Pauline Butling. Uh, they they named it Ali Alley Home Free. So <laughs> that's, that's where that comes in. All the tapes that you're talking about that you're referring to at between 2000 and 2003 were, Part of a, mostly part of a series that I was involved with, we had a thing called Calgary Writers House in the writing program. And that all started with transcribing a bunch of, I've always been a tape recorder fanatic and I've taped recorded readings, poetry readings all my life. So I've had quite a tape collection. Most of it is stored in at the Simon Fraser University archives now, but a lot of it is available at spoken word, from Concordia and UBC Okanagan, Penn Sound in Pennsylvania, and so forth. So we had the idea at Calgary Writers House, mostly working as you're doing in TIA Writers House, TIA House, working with graduate students, and they recorded readings that we of people who we had come onto the campus. They also recorded this, this conference, if you like, called Alley Alley Home Free, which was on in May 15th to 18th, 19 or 2003 just before I retired from the university there so I guess that's the context for both the book and the conference.
2: Uh, So I got a chance to listen to a lot of those tapes and they're super fascinating. Uh, I think one of the things that you brought up that I find super interesting is that this was a term that you used a lot as a kid because I think one of the topics and one of the themes I think we're going to be touching a lot about in this particular episode is the idea that like the name just keeps on coming back uh, that we keep on seem to be running into it um, and how it very much is this interesting connection from a few different generations of grad students now because this particular recording of the conference from 2003 is now going to like kind of inform us in 2022 and when this episode will be released. So I think in 2023, so almost exactly 20 years later. So it's a nice little echo. I was wondering what to tell people a little bit about like where they might pick up copies of these books. Uh, I know you mentioned that it has now been collected as a part of Music of the Art of Thinking. um, That is now a big one. I think I saw that you have a digital copy of it out there, but I think this particular version with the like the the singular alley alley home free one is no longer in press. So secondhand bookstores might be a good place
3: to look for them. Yeah, I, it's been out of, I don't know when it went out of print but it's been out of print for a while. And which is the reason why Talon Books uh, wanted to, mm-hmm. uh, they planned for quite a few years to reissue the, the whole thing. But um, I guess if they wanted to get a copy of the original book, you're right. The only place they're going to find it is in bookstores and libraries. And it's a nice, uh, you know, Red, Red Deer College Press did very nice, these whole series of books, same size, same, kind of the same design, called, a series called Writing West that uh, Dennis Johnson, the publisher at the time, put these put that together. And I was involved with Red Deer College for a number of summers. BP Nickel and I taught in the summer school program at Red Deer College, and we became very good friends with uh, Dennis Johnson the publisher at Red Deer and he was a very enthusiastic supporter of poetry and other and other books and he published a lot of books they did a they did a fantastic job of publishing a, a wide range of particularly if you like uh, prairie writing or west western writing so a lot of the Calgary writers were published there and plus plus many other writers now when I was in when I was living in Alberta in the uh, in the 90s in the late 80s late and, and 90s. Red Deer College Press was still going on. So this, they picked up this music at the heart of thinking quite early on in, in the 90s and actually made it possible for me to kind of collect the project, which was really a long poem project uh, up to a certain point. And the project was partly involved with when BP Nickel and I taught at Red Deer College in the summers, we were we would we talked a lot about the whole notion of the long poem. And the long poem as a form in Canada was very, very popular in the in the in the eighties. And it was one of the major forms. There was a couple of anthologies edited by one edited by Michael and Datshade, the Long Poem Anthology, and then Sharon Thiessen did a couple of editions of it. And so there were a lot of long, long poems out and around. And BP Nickel was writing his long poem, The Martyrology, a lifelong poem. And at the time I thought I was I had kind of chosen this it's kind of a serial form almost of writing but it's a way of I I use it as a way of responding to other texts and art and music so uh, the original book has a series called art knots in the back and these get these kind of get enveloped into a a decimal series in the uh, in the book that Talon books published music at the heart of thinking so they're not there Mm -hmm. as Separate art knots. I I don't always pay attention to the website. uh, That uh, it's a website at Simon Fraser University, a digital archive that Deanna Fong, who's at Concordia, who lives in Montreal, and she manages the the Mm -hmm. website. And she and some graduate students that she works with kind of manage that. I'm anyway. if it's it's available digitally there. That's uh, that's good
2: it's super fascinating that like we are very much talking about long poems as well as how they are catalogued in a way um, because I think that does tie in with how we're going to be talking about cataloguing works and tapes later on inside of this episode but I'm fascinated by this idea of like the summer course that you were talking about because you mentioned already about talking about the poetic prose the new sentence as well as like the tyranny of the sentence um, and I like I dabble in poetry. <laughs> I very much like show up to a couple of poetry grad classes every couple of years. Um, but I am not super familiar with those ideas. So, do you want to talk a little bit more about that?
3: I mean, the best way to talk about it is uh, to give you an example, I guess. So, I'll just read a short piece from Ali Ali Homefree. Okay. And uh, so, this is from a little series right at the beginning of Ali Ali mm-hmm. Humphrey, and. It's it's based on, it's responding to some wor- some writing by Robert Croach to his book Field Notes or to his, his, his long poem, his lifelong project called Field Notes. So here's one, it's called Music at the Heart of Thinking 71, called Fat Bits and it breaks up size into the labyrinth, goes inside the larger to really show the invisibility of the city as only virtual. What remains are real streets and buildings, According to Homer, this change in the condition of experience corresponds to Blake's beach, heaven, sand. Could this be the shouldering of the world? The specific seems to operate in this, as you say, abandoned way. But to have daughters makes me wish naturally for the right kind of jar, like the sack of winds Aeolus gave to Odysseus gingerly. I guess that's not really a good example of what I mean by the sentence there. Actually, the one before that, It's, this is a a direct response to Croce's poem, the Delphi poem. E not quite there in Delphi's mind slope except for the eggplant, but on the periphery, the traffic is something else, not unlike the quick movement of the small bug attracted to the light at the edges of the papers under the desk lamp. Now it's raining, finally, after three weeks of heat, moths and what we call cedar bugs get in their last licks. Hermes comes into the room as a stunned silence in the middle of the yak-yak din, a borderline coyote too excited by the lushness of the minutiae to pee on the post. This means time and space don't really matter. This, Canada, Cambodia, Canaan, et al. So there's, you know, there's a couple of sentences in there that are would, you know, grammatically be called like run-on sentences, but Mm -hmm. the running on or running over the end of the sentence is intentional. It's a way to kind of break up the uh, expected cadence of a sentence, you know, subject, object, predicate. And it allows the sentence to be more of a, I don't know, a run, <laughs> just, it, it, and, it, and it doesn't have to end. <laughs> and that was just the whole point of the long poem is that uh, re- the resistance to closure and how do you avoid closing something off, which is that's usually the opposite of most writing problems is how do I end this? You know how do how do I end this? How do I end this story? How do I end this poem properly? Well, the whole notion of ending has been created a real problem compositionally for writing anything. You know it always implies shape, it implies uh, denouement in fiction, usually. It implies uh, cadence in in poetry, frequently involving rhyme and so forth. and but it, it sometimes, it frequently runs into a trap, which was what my, my friend Tom Wayman calls the ominously predictable ending. So sometimes you're reading a poem and it usually starts out I and you. <laughs> um, but it, after the first stanza, you know where this poem is going to go. You have a feeling, you know, and it's just going to satisfy that notion of, oh, right, this is a poem and it's going to end like all these other poems end. And the long poem, was sort of developed or was worked on by a lot of writers to kind of avoid that predictability to play around I suppose to investigate the possibilities of unpredictability in language and poetry particularly in poetry but it also happens in fiction I think there are a lot of there are other writers in fiction who who do that Jack Kerouac was a great spontaneous writer uh and so it, it, you know it tracks words like spontaneity uh, improv- improvisation unpredictability things like that
2: yeah i find that super fascinating because you talk about this in conjunction with a class do you mind if i ask like who were the the class targeted for like were these like first years were these like upper
3: years were these Which students? class are you talking about
2: um, the class that you were talk you were teaching um, at red deer college
3: it was a summer it was a summer writing program that that they had at Red Deer. And I know that myself and BP taught there. We, it was about a three-week session, I think, over a period of three weeks. And uh, once a, each week they would have a different writer come in. So like one time oh, they had Robert Croche come in, another time they might have Aretha Van Hert come in for a week. I forget who all came in right now, but It was mostly divided up into, uh, you know, just a kind of a general session each day of three or four Mm -hmm. hours, and then separate manuscript consultations and that kind of thing. There were a bunch of readings going on. It was like a literary, a little literary program going on in the summer at Red Deer.
2: Amazing. Yeah. So I'm guessing from that description, it's like a cross section of a lot of different kinds of writer-act who do different things are interested in different ideas so did you introduce this idea of like let's write long poems uh, to these students because I know when I was teaching creative writing that was one of the things that I was always kind of curious but also kind of hesitant about because I was teaching first years and so they were like but where are my rules where are my rhyme schemes so did you feel that with this particular group as well where you're like teaching a class and you have all of these ideas about like how do you break uh, predictability? No I think it was more
3: Um, um, a lot of this most of the students who came there mm -hmm. were were already writers Mm -hmm. I mean it wasn't a a, like it wasn't a university writing course in that sense Mm -hmm. and so people a lot of people who came had projects underway that they Mm -hmm. were interested in uh, moving on with. And they also came there to, uh, you know, work specifically with, let's say, myself and BP and some of the others who were mm-hmm. coming in. Uh, so they knew what they were kind of coming for, the kind of writing they were interested in exploring. But a lot of the a lot of the people there were they were already you know there were people like Christine Stewart from Katrina Strang and Lisa Robertson from mm-hmm. Vancouver and. Clint Burnham and uh, Nicole Markotic from Calgary, uh, a number of writers from Calgary and Edmonton. So the Red Deer being sort of in the middle of uh, Alberta that way, it was, uh, there are a lot of mm-hmm. lot of writers between Alberta and mm-hmm. between Edmonton and Calgary there. Yeah, it was, they were, we, and we didn't actually have a, a an agenda to, you know, write long poems or uh, that was just, that was one form of writing if you like or Mm -hmm. but we were interested in the whole notion of of contemporary poetics and paying attention to sort of what was current in poetic thinking so yeah we played around a lot with different Mm -hmm. approaches to writing and bp himself had had a great background in you know writing for television and writing for music and poetry and novels and prose Mm -hmm. so uh, there was a wide range of uh, background experience from BP. And I remember when it was, <laughs> I was mostly interested in poetry. I hated prose, right? That's one of the reasons I got into Ellie Ellie Humphrey or got into Music with of, of Thinking. But at the end of, in 1988, that was the last mm-hmm. summer that I taught there. And the last summer BP taught there because he died in the end of September in 1988. And I was writer-in-residence at the University of Alberta in Edmonton uh, that year, 88, 89. And just before we split up at, in August, before we left Red Deer, BP and I were talking about, you know, ourselves and our, our, our own writing. And BP said, oh, I think a writer should try everything. If you're going to write, you should, you know, you got to try writing prose, drama, poetry, television, everything, Try it, try it all. And I said, oh, no, 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 that's, I, I, you got to focus. You got to focus. And I, and I, and I said, I can't stand prose. It's just like prose really, I find difficult. And it's so, it's it's so, it's so predictable in a way. And that he said, well, try the three day novel contest. He had done the three day novel contest himself a number of years before that. And they actually published his, he won, he won the contest. And so they published his book. So I took BP at his word and that Labor Day in 1988, I decided, okay, the 3-Day Novel Contest was a Labor Day weekend contest put on, put on by Pulp Press in Vancouver. It had been going for a number of years. And the idea was on uh Friday night, Labor Day weekend, you start writing and you finish on Monday night, midnight on Labor Day and uh, you try to write a novel. So it was a three-day novel and uh, I had I didn't know how I was going to do this I'd never written prose I never was anyway I sat down that weekend I thought okay well I'll take BP at his word give it a shot and I wrote for a whole weekend and I ended up writing you know 60 or 70 pages of anecdotal writing basically family stories and bio biofiction, if you like or biotext and, uh, and I thought, at the end of it I just I sent it to Steve Bosburn the the publisher at, at uh, Pulp Fiction, and Steve said, uh, "Well, it's definitely not a novel, but we want to publish it." Uh, <laughs> I said, "I don't know." I said, "I don't. It's not. It's not. It's not for publication. It's not. It's not something I'm that proud of." And uh, so I put it in a box. I put it away, and but there were a few pieces there that I read over at readings that I kind of liked and picked up on. And finally, Aretha Van Herk, my colleague at the University of Calgary had heard some of these and she asked to look at the whole box of stuff and so she started help you know she 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 designed it she she kind of got into it and uh and helped me shape it if you like so uh it became a it became a collection of short fiction called diamond and grill which is about growing up in a chinese canadian cafe but anyway that's the kind of thing that in a sense came out of it for me but so I think other people perhaps came out of it with a similar g- generative push. That is, I'm going to try, try different things because there were all kinds of writers in Alberta at the time that, and a lot of them became my students at the University of Calgary. Rita Wong, Hiromi Gotosh, Eshu Mathur, Susan Holbrook, and so forth. They're all, they were all wonderful writers. and they're all, Many of them are still writing, but many of them had gone to the red deer thing. Uh, for a few weeks or we're around that time. Gee, I'm going on and on.
2: <laughs> no, no, we love uh, we love all of this additional information for the podcast. Um,
3: uh, but yeah, I find that super,
2: super interesting as I said, as I like slowly started raising. I have Diamond Girl right here.
3: okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, I think that is absolutely fascinating because I think, like you said, a lot of your students continue to write. Um, and I'm guessing they've probably also evolved and changed over the last couple of years. So where do you kind of like see long poems kind of like transforming, changing over the last couple of, of I guess, decades? Yeah, yeah the long you... poem,
3: I, I don't think the long poem is as uh, uh, you know, it's not as, as popular as it was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It still goes on. I mean, people still have po- you know, poetic projects mm-hmm. that are end up being sort of long, long poems of one kind or another. But some of the compositional lessons that uh, or experience that you get in working with a long poem is very useful in terms of, as I say, resisting closure, trying to push the writing beyond that notion of cadence and ending, that shapeliness that formal writing sometimes uh, attracts. So, yeah, I think it still goes on in different ways. And at least I from what, you know, I see it in younger writers or in, in, in contemporary writing. It's uh, it's still there in 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 a variety of ways.
2: I think that's definitely true of from what I have seen from many of our colleagues at the U of C. Where it's like there are some really interesting things being done. I do think some of that inspiration comes from the long poem. Yeah, so
3: well, so- even even Larissa's book, her her last book of poetry slipped my mind. Title of it. But a um, series it was a long series of things based on the the hybin, okay, with the mm-hmm. the Chinese Japanese form the hyben. And uh, and we had talked a lot about that, but you know, I talked with Larissa about that many years, and I've been I've written hyben too. And to see Larissa get into that long project, which mm-hmm. is a stunning piece of writing, po- poetic writing, that and she does all this stuff that happens in the long poem, you know, this run-on. Run on text, run on prose, <laughs> and, and just playing around with what that run on can get you. So,
2: yeah, um, I believe this is the Iron Goddess of Mercy that we are talking
3: right. about, right? Yeah, that's what it is. That it is, yeah, uh, beautiful uh, book.
2: Yes, named after the tea that is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> 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 yeah, so I think. Yeah, that is one of the really interesting things because like I do think it does continue to kind of reappear in all of these different forms. I'm thinking of readings I've attended with some of our new grad students and they also very much employ those same idea of like trying to resist the closure, trying to push back against that idea of normal sentence structure um, mm-hmm. i'm like, really interested in kind of seeing where that continues to go i think a lot of people have like had an opportunity to read yours and uh other long poems um i think taking like taking inspiration from some of that uh, i'm going to kind of slowly move us towards the idea of the conference that happened in 2003, uh, also sharing the name Ali Ali Home Free. Um, and was, you know, I think plays into a lot of these themes that we have already started talking about. So like this idea of like all of these smaller parts making up a bigger whole, I think it's like the perfect description of like what a conference is. But yeah, do you want to talk a little about about that conference? Because I know it was kind of like right before you retire from the UFC what that was like? People, panels that you kind of remember, things that you really want to like kind of bring up, stories they want to share?
3: Well it was a it was an amazing conference and I'm really forever grateful to uh, the people at uh, Calgary who uh, uh, worked on this. Nicole Markotic, Mm -hmm. Susan Rudy and uh, Derek Beaulieu and my wife Pauline uh, helped them with making contact with some of the people but they invited a huge number of of friends basically everyone who came was was a friend from my writing life one way or another Mm -hmm. so that was just stunning to uh, see all these people in one place it's like having a you know a great a huge family reunion and and a lot of these people know one another and a lot of them didn't know one another so there were people from Britain from Portugal from the United States I don't think we had anyone from China there did we no we didn't but there were you know, it was a, quite a range of people. The forum of the conference was lovely. And so it was in one, one big room and it went through a series of a number of people gave papers and there were a number of readings. Of course, there was a huge uh, social <laughs> aspect to the conference. I guess some, one of the things that stood out to me was hearing, I kind of got to sit up in the corner and I didn't really have to participate except to do one reading. And uh, so I just sat up in the corner and listened to a lot of these people. A lot of my f- friends give their papers and talk a little bit about their own writing experience. It wasn't a conference about myself and my writing. It was a conference about some of my uh, my interests. And if you look at the just looking at the program for it here, this, the plenary session is called Racing Through Poetics One, Racing Through Poetics Two. Well, the whole question of race was really prominent for me in the '80s and '90s, and uh, I played. A, I worked a lot in notions of racialization and race writing, particularly with Roy Miki at SFU, but also a lot of my students: uh, Ashok Mather, uh, Rita Wong, Aromi Goto, Wayman Chan. These were people who were also very interested in the notion of race and writing. So that that was a big topic for me, a section in there called Diminishing the Lyric I, <laughs> uh, chaired by Doug Barber. Well, Doug had written a lovely paper on on the lyric, on the anti-lyric. And so just focusing on that notion of the problematic I in the lyric and for, for, for poetry. And that's that was something that I kind of had to be in my bonnet about for a lot of my teaching years anyway. Engendering practices. So the whole notion of How to you know that writing as a practice and uh, aspects of gender and and process and publishing go on there. The notion of faking it, faking it was a book. The title of a book of mine of essays, uh, so-called essays. They were not real essays. They were fake essays, and that uh, was published by uh, the University of uh, published by New West Press hybridity a, a section called on hybridity hybridity is comes out of mostly out of my work with diamond grill and but also in faking it the whole notion i'm a mixed race person i'm uh i'm a quarter chinese and uh, a quarter scots irish and and half swedish i'm kind of a mixed up person and i've always been interested in interrogating race in terms of hybridity because that's where I that's what that's my position and that that notion of, of hybridity has you know it carried on pretty much after I left U of C into you know for the right right up till now and I still still find myself talking a lot about hybridity and trying to find out ways to articulate that notion of being in between and particularly the notion of the in Diamond Grill one of the the metaphors, the most the central metaphors of the book is the door. So one of my later books I published called is called "Is a Door," and that notion of uh, standing in the doorway. You know, when you stand in the doorway, you can see both rooms. So there's a great advantage to being the being in the middle. There's a great disadvantage too to others because you're getting the way <laughs> people can't get through. <laughs> the dynamics of of hybridity are fascinating and. I think they apply to a lot of situations and events, if you like. It certainly applies to writing, being between words, (laughs) being in the middle of a sentence. All of that is very apropos. But also the whole social aspect of of writing and thinking about, particularly about race, but also about gender and about just the whole question of, of identity. And it comes out of that a lot of the discourse around identity politics and you know 20 or 30 years ago but but it still goes on it's still uh, it's still very much something that a lot of people have to address so the conference itself addressed a lot of those kinds of subjects if you like mm-hmm. that i was interested in and and obviously friends of mine were interested in and they were interested in enough to write about different aspects of it Uh, Not all of them. Some of them have, you know, were very particular research projects that um, were specific to that to to that person's academic uh, life, if you like. But anyway, the conference was a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful conference, and it was so lovely to hear uh, all these people gave readings, and we had a couple of large group readings, and. Yeah, I don't know what else I can say about it. <laughs> it it's just, it was a great event. What a great, yeah. what a great send off to leave, uh, to leave Calgary with, so.
2: Yeah, I think we kind of started touching upon this a little bit earlier when you mentioned that you were mostly sitting in a corner. I think we're kind of moving into that middle space when you're talking about the conference, but also about kind of the archival process. So do you have particular thoughts about like that particular challenges? things that you are kind of like glad to have captured upon tape, um, especially since a lot of the conferences are turning hybrid. So they are going on Zoom at the same time. So they could literally record everything. Challenges, thoughts about the recording?
3: Well, I don't know. The whole notion of recording has always fascinated me because I'm a kind of a, a semi-techie person. You know, I love tape recorders and, 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 the, and the digitization of, of the oral. And that's always interesting. And I, as I say, I've I made tapes all my all my writing and teaching life, so I have you know tapes of uh, fifty or sixty years going back. And I, in fact, I just gave Kara at uh, UBCO uh, the collect, the original collection of the nineteen sixty three Vancouver Poetry Conference tapes, so uh, which I had recorded, and so these are on you know, reel-to-reel recorders, so 7 is real. So the tapes are, you know, well, 50, <laughs> 50 years old uh, at least, 60 years old. And there's still some of them, many of them are still okay. They're just, they still work all right. I don't know. I Susan Rudy got involved when she was a colleague at mine, of mine at the University of Calgary. And she got involved in trying to set up these... If you like digital archives, because in the 90s, as we went in, got more and more into the internet and to digitization, the whole notion of a website came up. And it became a very, for academics, it became a very generative and possible site through which to, you know, not only teach, but also to document. Susan Rudy uh, got a, re- made a, an arrangement with, I think it was York University to uh, set up kind of archival websites of myself and B.P. Nickel. And I think she was going to, she started to do Erin Morey, but didn't get into it and then left. And and she left the University of Calgary and uh, shortly after I did. In any case, those two websites, uh, the B.P. Nickel website and the Fred Waugh website were at at York University and at one point, uh, Darren Werschler-Henry, that he, he was involved with managing them, they asked him to get them off their website. Mm-hmm. They needed, they didn't want them on there uh, to host them anymore. So Darren managed to uh, get them moved. Mine, we, we moved to the Simon Fraser University and, and, oh God, where did BPs go? The name escapes me now. It's down east. Not very good of me. <laughs> can't remember. Can't remember where that is. But BP's website is still there. So what happened at Simon Fraser with the Fred Wall website is that it ended up being adapted by Deanna Fong, uh, who was a student of from from the, from uh, Concordia University, who had been involved with Spoken Web, and so she was very interested in archiving and in archiving, particularly archiving tape recordings. So she got involved with the program Spoken Web at Concordia. And then she got involved with Simon Fraser and managed to get the Fred Waugh archive supported by the university there, the special collections at the university. uh, She still does that today. Although she's graduated and she teaches elsewhere, she still runs the website. And uh, I think she has has a shirt grant presently for it and has graduate students working on it. And she plans to, I think, keep getting support for that. But of course, one of the big questions that comes up with archives and is that these things get started by graduate students and graduate students leave, (laughs) <laughs> and get jobs and doing other things <laughs> and so they put all this uh, shirk money into establishing these, these websites and then they just get dropped and which is unfortunate so uh, it's a great and it, it, it is a great research thing and you know people finding out how to set up a, a website and what they're going to set it up about but I think the challenge there and people like Kara Scherer and Deanna Fong are very interested in trying to sort of, if you like, um, intervent the whole notion of the archive and turn it into something, perhaps something a little different than simply being something that's houses old things somewhere and that you can kind of go back to. I mean, there's that too, but the challenge is is to, how do how do we, as a society mm-hmm. use this material in a you know in a constructive way if you like or and should we and not just how we do it technologically but how should we treat it aesthetically if you like or even even academically should it just be a research tool or should it be a showcase what ways can a website because there's so many possibilities on the internet that, what ways could the website perform itself for others mm-hmm. right And I think that those are interesting questions. And I think the constant things we keep asking, Deanna keeps asking her graduate students, and I keep asking them too, uh, people working on these things, is, well, what more can you do with it? And how can you change it so that it's going to remain useful and not simply, I mean, books are great, right? They get put on a shelf and you can go and get them for hundreds of years. Are you going to be able to do that with websites? I don't know. And as you say now, because of the technology, you know, people can record a conference, and they record thousands of conferences. And particularly now with Zoom, you know, they got video conferences that are just you know, there's the, the countless trillions of hours that are being collected and archived. Is it's just it's just amazing. But what are we going to do with it, and how are we going to treat it so that it's that it has value and that it. Uh, sustains itself somehow it's not simply there to play around with but
0: but it is though it is
3: also there to play around with and I invite people to you know to play around with it play around with the archive and the whole notion of the archive is uh, a questionable certainly a questionable thing from many aspects so I invite people to question it so um,
2: um, so we are talking about like what are the ways that we can kind of use and construct or like ways that we can use recordings constructively. I actually think that is a really fantastic topic for us to be moving into because I think that was one of the questions and challenges that Tea House was asking ourselves. Do you have like a personal opinion of like what you would love to see be done with these recordings? Like, do you hope like, more than just an archive we turn into like episodes for podcast listeners so they can put it in on and like the car as they like listen to it well
3: yeah no i one of the things i'm i guess one aspect of archives that i'm interested mm-hmm. in is how to suitably contextualize the material so mm-hmm. obviously not everything in an archive is going to be interest of interest to everyone and a lot of it's going to be not going to be interested to any interested to anyone <laughs> it's just uh peripheral you know it's just stuff it's a lot of stuff there so one of the jobs is to of an archivist or of of the project of archiving a project is to I think find ways to contextualize material in such a way that others can not just work with it but perhaps develop it even further and so for example one of the problems we're having right now with the Wall Archive at Simon Fraser University is that, let's say, Deanna wants to maybe put up mm-hmm. some, you know, published poetry that was published uh, many years ago. For example, she might put up a little chat book of mm-hmm. mine on the website. And okay, so one of the problems with that is that it has to get permission from, so we'd have to get permission from the publisher later on. And that, so getting permissions is one question, but also then what do you do with such a thing? How do you contextualize it and who's gonna contextualize it? Well, that's a fairly simple thing and can be done around a notion of a podcast or the notion of a a talk, you know, like uh, Fred Wall will read this and we'll talk about it and and, uh, use it as a kind of focus or whatever that might be worth, I don't know. But how to contextualize things is, really that's a big question uh and that's really where a lot of the work you know is so like for today you're doing this interview with me Mm -hmm. which is contextualizing in a sense the tapes that uh were collected in the last few years that i was at ufc and that uh, we're not, you know, we're not specifically contextualizing them all. We're looking at one mm-hmm. body of them, which is the Ali Ali Homefree conference. Mm-hmm. But there are many other tapes there too. So, you know, for example, you know, I could just looking at your your index here, March 20, 2002, Roy Miki in class poetics. And so, you know, we could talk about why is Roy Miki doing a class on poetics in twenty twenty two. We we need to find that out. You might not be able to get that answer from Roy. I don't know. Whose class was it? It was probably Fred Waugh's class. Or who were the students in the class? You know, what what effect did the class have? So doing some research, so that's a research project that somebody could just say, okay, I'm going to try to find out what, what that's all about. Listen to the tape, find out who was there, describe it a bit. And that might be, I would guess, because it's Roy Meekie, who's a brilliant uh, thinker, that it would probably be very useful to uh, a lot of other people, young writers or or people who are interested in poetics. So each of these things, not each of them, but you know here's Christian Bach doing a reading uh, in t- two thousand and two, and there's an interview with him. Who's Christian Bach? Well, he lives in Australia now, but he you know he did he did this and he did that, and he's 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 interested in a certain kind of poetics. So that's a lead that takes you, you know, kind of. There's a bunch of links linking to Christian that take one out into language poetry and uh, Flarf and so forth. So con- context is a big thing. And then I guess the other thing that I'm interested in is how can these things, these recordings, which, that, which is basically what the digital thing is, is re- recording, not just oral, not just recording readings, but they record actual you know they'll print this and on the website they'll have a facsimile of it on the website so as you say someone you said ali ali oldenfree is apparently available on the website so you can actually go there and read it but what ways could one make that a different reading experience perhaps it's not it's not a, it's not it's not a book it's something else it's uh digitized and so it offers other other ways to read because it's did because things are because print can be digitized links can be added to to the text so that the text expands which you don't get in a book okay so there are aspects that one could investigate here in terms of interventing the whole notion of stuff in an archive which is not just books and manuscripts and tape recordings and so forth
2: yeah i think that's a really good way of thinking about how you know the landscape is very much changing in terms of all of this recording. And so I think context, like this is very much a podcast episode, trying to contextualize some of the recordings that we now have access to. And I think this is also probably a really good idea of like, whether or not this might be something to consider for future archival work as well, where it's like, maybe maybe we should be thinking about how like, all future conference recordings should really have like a, a quick note about like what is the context, what is the topic, what is happening. And so, I think we should probably talk about some of the tapes, which happen to be about the classes. So, the fre- so you already mentioned that we had a Roy Mickey in class Poetics from 2002. We have a few others from I think pretty sure we have yeah we have a few from 2001. So. I know you've already mentioned that, like you have already, you were already in the habit of recording and documenting, and really kind of archiving for us a lot of these episodes, a lot of these like specific events. And I was wondering if you had particular reasons for some of these recordings.
3: Well, we had yeah. we had a the precursor to Tia House was Calgary Writers House, and that's what was going on here. We Calgary Writers House was a basically. Uh, started by myself and, the, and some of my students at, uh, in, at Calgary. And we've raised money through, basically through the department or through the university to get some equipment. And back in 2000 and uh, 2001, that was the big thing, was to find recording equipment, microphones, cameras, uh, tape recorders, blah, 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 and start recording because this, this is a community. Okay, this is a a community of writing Calgary in the '90s, and is still there. I mean, there's Calgary still a writing, a very strong writing community, and we had a whole series of events all going on all year long. I I was I'm always been a very, I've always been very interested in bringing in writers from outside. So I would always max out our Canada Council reading applications and other ways to get writing in. We started the Mark and Flanagan Writers Program. That was, that we didn't, the Calgary Writers House didn't start that, but I was very involved with getting that, helping to get that going. So we were paying attention to the community of writing that was around the University of Calgary at the time. So these tapes were simply tapes, like the 2001 tapes, Are tapes of people who we brought in to do class, you know, give a talk or give a reading, uh, do a class. And some of the students got involved in sort of doing this on their own. Like they've, oh, we're having this reading by, oh, yeah, filling station. Here's a reading by filling station in 2001. It's the launch. So they've recorded the whole launch of filling station number 21 in May of 2001 and jill hartman stephen massacote louis cabri uh sanchez they're different readers reading there so be wonderful to kind of take that but that tape is an hour and 40 minutes long recording is fine but the permissions might be a nightmare especially considering that the works appear across multiple publications (laughs) that's that's the note here the uh the podcastable (laughs) note well yeah i think that's a great those are great questions how are you going to what kind of permissions do you need Do you need to get permissions from the original speakers or authors i don't know Uh, most at that time the whole notion of getting permission to record someone it wasn't around for most of my life i would just put down the recorder when somebody started reading and they would record and i'd record it i never asked them if we could use it (laughs) it was just there and it was for educational use so students could read it could listen to it who weren't able to be at the reading or listen to it later or whatever and now all those tapes are at Simon Fraser and you know hundreds hundreds and hundreds of tapes of people I've recorded in over 50 60 years so they're not going to be able to get i don't think the university or the archive is too concerned about getting permission because these these tapes are there just simply for educational purposes if someone, if one of the, if Louis Cabri, say, who reads from the Mood Enhancer at the filling station, reading, when you go to him and say, can we, you know, uh, re, reissue this recording? He's probably going to say yes. You know, if if you have to, or reissue it anyway and see what he says. <laughs> Maybe he'll come back and say, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, it, it's open. It's all. It's all very open ground. These are not rules that were there when the recordings were made. No one asked these people at the filling station reading, is it OK to record you? That wasn't done. It was just that's what happened. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. students, were in, because the, the, the machines were around and writers and intellectuals were coming into campus and being recorded, great, that's, they were there. I didn't, I didn't collect the tapes myself. I, you know, they were there. As you said, what did you find it? You had a big box of them or something. I don't know. I got a a big red tote
2: bag. (laughs) I got a big red (laughs) tote bag from Larissa uh, because I think it was in the tea house office for a while. I think Larissa got them from someone else. And
3: so we we were like, we should probably (laughs) digitize these just so we know what's on them. I know, I know that Robert Bengels, who was at the department after I was there, uh, I passed on the recorder to, to Robert, so he had the recorder. I don't know if he did any recording of stuff, but there's nothing here after, after 2003, so I don't know. There are other tapes around. I know I've got other tapes that you don't have in this collection that I made before 2001 from Calgary, hundreds of them. <laughs> But uh, they're not part of this batch. But they'll all end up, you know, if they're worth it, if they're still usable, they'll end up at at spoken word or, you know, the University of Pennsylvania or something. So people can have access to them.
2: Yeah. And I think like with how technology is now just like readily available, I think we're going to continue having this conversation about like, how do we get permission? Who can we just publish it? Because having seen the number of publications on things like Instagram or just like recordings of people doing readings on social media I think we're gonna have a very interesting conversations about kind of like the readily accessible <laughs> public archive that is the internet
3: um, yeah and I think a lot of these things are going to become articulated as if you like as formal <clears throat> formal ways to uh, handle a recording or handle uh, something and you don't want to get too bureaucratic about it though I don't think I think it's uh, the whole notion of A lot of the, you know, current technology started out at least being free and open and opening things up, not closing things down.
2: So you might say like the sentence, we are trying to resist closure.
3: Right. right. (laughs) Um,
2: Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian.
1: We hope you enjoyed this interview of Fred Wah by Xu Yin Yu. I'm Mark Herman Lynch, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We want to recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababneh, Ryan Stern, Shuyin Yu, Shazia Hafiz, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Gillin, Ben Gann, Amy LeBlanc, and Mark Herman Lynch. Our music is Moniker of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Thank you so, so much for listening.